Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Job chapter 15. When I was considering teaching Job, I had to wrestle with the idea that Job has a tendency to repeat itself because Job has three friends who come to supposedly comfort and sympathize with them. And each friend, in a series of soliloquies, speak to Job, and they do so in a series of three different times. And so part of me wanted to say, well, maybe I should shrink it down and just hit a verse or two or whatever. But my natural tendency is to preach through the whole word. So that didn't feel quite comfortable to me. And then I remembered something. The, P, the Bible repeats itself a lot. Because somehow we just don't pay attention. That God, God tells us throughout his scriptures that he loves us. Then when something bad happens, we wonder if he loves us. We are told to do certain things, and then we conveniently forget to do them. And even in the Old Testament commands, there was Exodus and Leviticus. God told them what the law was, and then in Deuteronomy, he reminded them what the law was. So God frequently reminds us about his word. And also, if, if his people had got it, then he'd only have to say it. So, for instance, Job is found in the wisdom section, which means it's wise. There's wisdom to be imparted in it. But even in Jesus' time, after they had the opportunity to read and study Job, still had the theology that if something bad happened to you, you were a sinner. And if you were wealthy and things good happened to you, then God was pleased with you and everything was wonderful. And the book of Job does not teach that at all. And so there is this repetition. And so I want us to kind of see that there's this repetition so that it reminds us of the word of God and not to fall into these errors. And we also sometimes can identify with Job because Job had a beautiful life. He was wealthy. He had a great family. His family fellowshiped with each other and took turns rotating who would host. And just in case there was the slightest bit of unintentional sin, Job would sacrifice for his kids. So things were doing well for Job. And in the beginning of Job, it removes all doubt and suspicions the writer of Job and God himself says that Job is a blameless man. So the things that are going to happen to Job are not because he's a sinner. As a matter of fact, it's because God had a conversation with Satan and God was the one who brought up Job. He said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan was the one who accused him and attacked him and said, if things go bad for him or curse you to his fa your face. And when all of these things happened, Job did not curse God to his face. Now, did that mean that he was a 
pillar of, of strength? No. Because of his pain and because of his turmoil and his internal questions, he suffered. And we have this kind of idea. We, we read the first two chapters and we quickly read them. He was through this pain constantly throughout. And on top of that, his pain was exacerbated because his friends did not sympathize or comfort him. As a matter of fact, his friends judged him. And again, we should identify with Job because besides people knowing the address of John 3.16, people even who are not in church will quote part of a scripture and then add one word. They'll say, don't judge me. The scriptures say, don't judge. But we always add, don't judge me. But let me give you a little clue. Your family and your friends will eventually, eventually judge you. People you don't know will judge you. Now, we are told that there's going to come a time when we will be judges, but that time is yet to come, and it's when we're going to know all the facts. You see, Job's friends didn't know all the facts. They simply judged him. They had one part of the theology that is actually true, but only it is not universally true. It is true in certain circumstances. But they took that theology and simply judged Job. And Job is at the point where he goes, you know, when I poured out my soul and I wished I was never born, then I poured out my soul and said, I just wish I were dead. And I don't understand what God is doing and why is he attacking me and all these things. And he's come to the conclusion because a lot of times we think, well, if I just able to talk it out, I'll feel better. But Job is going to come to the conclusion, whether he talks or whether he stays silent, He's still hurting. And that's going to happen eventually in our lives if it hasn't happened already. That's why we're taking a look at Job because tragedies have happened and will continue to happen in our lives and in the lives of our friends. And so in Job chapter 15, it's the second series of his three friends doing their soliloquy. And verse 1 says, Then Eliphaz, the Temanite responded, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with east winds? Should he argue with the useless talk or with words which are not profitable? Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder mediation before God. Basically, what his friend is saying is, if you were actually wise, you would only have to say a few words. Because you talk and talk and talk, it just shows you're not wise. Well, what the point of Job's speech is he's trying to get his friends to understand that they shouldn't judge him. And he doesn't know why God is doing what God is doing. Now, we have the advantage of knowing what God's doing in this case. In our lives, oftentimes we don't know what God's doing. And so his friends immediately attack him and say, basically, Job, you ought to just shut up. Because the more you talk, the more you hinder a mediation between you and God. The things will be fixed, but you keep talking, and the way you're talking is prohibiting that. For your guilt teaches your mouth, and you choose the language of, craft, of the crafty. He's saying, 
you're, you're trying to find that excuse and that exception to say that you're a, a blameless person. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Well, I'm sorry. All three of his friends have condemned him. And he's feeling that condemnation so much that he says in the past that I am an open joke to everybody. I'm a byword. When people bring my name up, they don't talk about a blameless guy. They talk about a guy who's open to ridicule. Your own mouth condemns you and not I, and your own lips testify against you. And then he's going to go back and say, well, not only do you talk too much and you have this problem and you ought to just shut up because you're not wise, he's going to then ridicule him some more. Verse 7, were you the first man to be born? Are you, are you the first man? Are you the one who all knowledge resides in because you've experienced everything? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? A whole lot. And what do you understand that we do not? Listen to Job. Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. So they're basically saying, we old guys are wise Got to listen to us, even though Job is in the same generation as them. But they're saying, we're wise. You ought to listen to us. Um, you're, you're not the first guy. Are the consolations of God too small for you? Now, talk about having someone hit you in the heart. Is the consolation of God too small? That's what Job is seeking, the consolation of God. Even the word spoken gently with you. Well, if you've been following the first three speeches, they've not been gentle. And this one is even more part of a rebuke. Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash? He's basically saying, when we talk, your eyes flash. Which I say is, have you ever seen somebody angry? And you can tell it in their eyes. That's exactly what's happening to Job. His friends are speaking to him, and instead of sympathizing and consoling him, they are judging him, and he feels unjustly condemned, and he's angry. And let's face it, you would be too. And you have been when people have unjustly judged you. That you should turn your spirit against God. Again, calling him a reprobate. And allow such words to go out of your mouth. What is man that he should be pure? See, they're talking at cross purposes. Job says, I am blameless. Job never asserts that he's sinless. As a matter of fact, as we saw in the beginning of the book of Job, he continually offered burnt offerings in case there might be some unintended sin. Job never claims to be sinless. He claims to be blameless, which is the very same thing God has already told us. So man is impure. He's right. But again, he's using a medicine for the wrong illness. 
or he who is born of a woman, that he should be righteous. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's correct. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy one, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. Basically saying, compared to God, no one's holy, and he's right. God is holy. And the angels worship him because he's holy. And we're to worship him because he's holy. We are only holy because he makes us that way. He separates us and causes us to be holy. Condemnation. And again, as I've said before, if you've not felt the judgment by friends, family, or other church members, serve a little longer. I will tell you, listen to me, and what I have seen, I will also declare. What wise men have told and what and have not concealed from their fathers. Basically, Eliphaz is saying, I'm so wise, you ought to listen to me, even though I don't have a clue what's going on. I have some theology right, and that's sometimes a big problem, because we listen to people who have a little bit of theology right, but not the whole counsel of God. And so they will capture a little bit of the word of God and say, okay, listen to me, because I have this right, and then they lead you down a wrong path because they don't have the whole counsel of God. To whom alone the land was given and no alien passes among them. The wicked man rise in pain all of his days, and the number of, of the years are stored up for the ruthless. Sounds of terror are in his ears, while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from the darkness, and he is destined for the sword. He wanders afar, I'm sorry, he wanders about for food, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They overpower him like a king ready for the attack, because he has stretched out his hand against God and conducts himself arrogantly against the Almighty. He rushes headlong at him with his massive shield, for he has covered his face with that. He's saying, he is so that he can use that as makeup. And made his thighs heavy with flesh. He has lived in desolate cities, his houses no one would inhabit, which are destined to become ruins. He will not become rich, nor will his wealth endure. And his grain will not bend down to the ground. He will not escape from darkness. And the flame will wither his shoots, and, all, and by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his palm branches will not be green. He will drop off the unripe grapes like the vine. He's saying, he will, even if he seems to be prospering, the grapes will never ripe. They'll just fall off worthless. And will cast off his flowers like the olive tree. For the company of the goddess is barren, and the fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity, and their mind prepares deception. Now, Eliphaz is partially correct. 
the ultimate goal and the ultimate destination of the wicked is this. But wicked will prosper at times. And good people will suffer at times. As a matter of fact, Jesus even tells us, it is better for us to suffer for righteousness' sake than for evil doing. We are as sheep to be slaughtered. We have been told if we are going to follow Jesus, if they hated Jesus, they'll hate us. Suffering is a part of what our faith is all about. So we can't say, oh, gee, when, I, when I'm suffering, it's because Jesus hates me. It's part and parcel of the calling. But they're so wrapped into immediacy. If you're a good little boy or a good little girl, then God will bless you. And if you're a bad little boy or a bad little girl, then God will take everything away. And that is, and he's addressing a situation that Job has already discussed. I've seen the tents of the wicked, and they're pretty plentiful. And I've seen the tents of the righteous, and they're suffering. So reality and your statements do not match. So again, instead of offering hope, he offers judgment. You shouldn't talk. You're guilty. Shut up. Repent. And it'll go well with you. And if you don't, you might as well expect what you're expecting. As I said last week, with friends like this, who needs enemies? And that's why When people come to church, just as Jesus embraced sinners, so should we. Instead of saying, oh, you're a sinner. Your fate's sealed. Your fate's not sealed until they breathe their last. Because that opportunity to come to him is always there. Then Job answered or responded. I've heard many such things. It's gone. This is now the fourth speech I've heard from you guys. And it's the fourth verse, same as the first. I've heard many such things. I'm going to chase this rabbit real brief. Our culture... And oftentimes, our faith and religion, we have a tendency to make arguments that will convince nobody. We feel very strongly about something, and so we'll say something that you go, if I held the other view, would I agree with you? So when we talk about that Jesus loves them and that Jesus as a wonderful plan for their life, that we need to give arguments and testimony that is in keeping with the word of God and reality. Not make arguments that are designed to make us feel good, but have no 
effect on those that were arguing. And that's exactly what his three friends have done. They've made arguments that have only driven a wedge in their... So he goes, sorry comforters are you all. And if, again, you go back to the early part of Job, the reason his friends came were to sympathize and comfort him. Is there no limit to windy words? So he responds back. You, you talk about me being windy. You guys are a tornado. Or what plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. He's going, if the situation was reversed, I could tell you the very same things you're telling me. And guess what you'd respond? We're blameless. We're innocent. But if you judge me based on this judgment, then I can judge you based on your judgment. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now that scripture doesn't say, if you don't judge, I won't judge. No, if I don't judge, God won't judge me. The least we get judged is from God. I too could speak like you. If I were in your place, I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. Basically, Job's saying, but I'd be different than you. Because I would comfort you. And I would speak words that would lessen your pain, not increase it. Because Job has been in physical pain, and now he has the pain of being isolated and alone and judged. If I speak, my pain is not lessened. And if I hold back, what has left me? He's, I, I don't know what to do. If I talk, I get more trouble and it hurt, still hurts. And if I don't talk, it still hurts. That's why his friends were so great when they just stayed silent for seven days and seven nights. But now he has exhausted me. You have laid waste all my company. You have shriveled me up. It has become a witness, and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. Now he's now talking about God. His anger has torn me and humbled, hunted me, hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. They have gaped at me with their mouths. They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They have masked themselves against me. He's saying God started all of this, and everybody else has been piling on. God hands me over to the ruffians and tosses me into the land of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me, and he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks through me with breaches after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. Job is saying the exact opposite of what we sing. We always sing the battle is the Lord. And the, the, the battle, is, God is victorious, and he's on our side, and he's, he fights the battle, and we win because he fights the battle. 
Job feels that instead of God fighting the battle against others, he's fighting it against him. That is why I keep saying over and over in these messages, do not exchange what you know about God for what you don't know about him. God is our warrior. Hold your uh, thumb there, if you will. And I'm going to quote, I'm going to read a verse that is well known in Romans chapter 8. Not the wrong verse. Starting with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, fortunately, we have this passage, Job didn't. But Job should have known God. Because God loves his people. So if God is for you, then who is against you? It just doesn't matter. Your friends, your family, your church, it just doesn't matter because God is for you, who's against you. He who do not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him give us, all, freely give us all things? If God sent Jesus to die for our sins, he sent his son, why would he withhold back the minor stuff? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, Satan loves to. And that's exactly what Satan did with Job. You're not as holy as you think you are. You're not as a good a Christian as you think you are. Boy, if people really know who you were, they'd ban you from church. Those are his accusations. Who is the one who brings a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. When we're accused before God, God says, he's justified. She's justified. Not just excused, justified. Who is the one who condemns? Your friends may condemn you. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So even when we mess up and even when the charges come and they're accurate and people don't misjudge us, Jesus said, my blood covers that. He's justified. You're justified. You are not condemned. God is the one who justifies. He is the one who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus. It's he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will, who will separate us from the love of Christ? We need to ask that question frequently. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul is going to answer this in a complete answer. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness 
or peril or sword. All of those adversaries, all of those things will never separate you from the love of God. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Again, Paul acknowledges what the Old Testament acknowledges, what we are told, that this life is not one free of pain and accusation and sin. And especially if you're a believer, because there are those who are going to see that you are brought to condemnation. But in all of these things, not some of them, not a part of them, not the big one. In all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. We just don't get by on the skin of our teeth. We overwhelmingly conquer. It's like a billion to zero. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Not because I'm significant, not because I'm strong enough, but because he is. For I am convinced. It's not, I kind of sort of think, I am convinced. And that's where we need to be. We need to be convinced of the love of God. So that when difficulties come, we don't go, well, I wonder if God's mad at me. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I don't know about Job. I don't know if he knew that much about God. I'm pretty sure he knew a whole lot more than we give him credit. Because he was a worshiper of God. I think he sought God's face continually. But when he was brought with the theology of the day that didn't match the reality of his life, it caused him to wonder and to sometimes doubt. And to think God was the one who was after him. Now, this isn't what I'm going to say is not necessarily biblical, but I want you to understand, and I don't think it's unbiblical. God isn't attacking Job. God is proud of him. God says, consider Job. I don't care what you do to him. He'll still praise me. He won't curse me. doesn't matter if he's blessed or not blessed. He will still, and, and we see in Job's turmoil, we're not, he's, he's almost saying, God's doing these things because God permitted it, but I don't understand it because I didn't do anything wrong in the sense I understand that I'm a sinner saved by grace and all these things. He's going, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But we have no excuse. The word of God has told us nothing separates us from the love of God. The word of God has told us that when bad things happen, as in life, even Jesus says, good and bad things happen to the righteous and good and bad things happen to the unrighteous. When asked by his disciples, who sinned this blind man from birth or his parents, Jesus said, neither but that the glory of God might be manifested. So maybe when difficulties come and when tragedies come in our life, maybe it's God not being mad at us, but being proud and saying, 
Watch my servant, whomever. They'll praise me. They'll bless my name. Because they will never exchange what they know about me, that I love them. I love them so much I sent Jesus. They'll never doubt that. Job continues feeling in verse 10, they have gaped at me with their mouths and they have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. And he goes on, and God has handed me over. And and again, he goes, his arrows surround me without mercy. He splits my kidneys. He goes on with that. Then he says, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. This is verse 15. And thrust my horn in the dust. Horn shows a sense of, of, Raining and power, he's going. I'm I'm so defeated. I just I stick whatever I have as strength in the ground. My face is finished from weeping, flushed with from weeping, and deep darkness is over my eyelids. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Notice he's saying, I'm not coming to you, God, with dirty hands. And God knows he's not coming to him with dirty hands because he already said he's blameless. For do not cover my blood and let there be no resting place for my cry. He's kind of echoing, if you will, like when Abel's blood cried out. He's saying, even when I die, my blood blood will cry out, I'm innocent. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And my advocate is on high. My friends are my scoffers. You understand? The place that he is going to get vindication is in heaven. Because his friends don't acknowledge it. My eyes weep to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. For when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. He's going... There may not be vindication in this life. I ne- may, my friends may never see that I am not guilty, that I am blameless. But I do have an advocate in heaven. And so do you. He continues on and says that his spirit is broken. In his days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me, and my eyes glaze on their provocation. Lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? It's called Jesus and the Holy Spirit. For you have kept their hearts from understanding, therefore you will not exalt them. He who informs against his friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also languish but he has made me a byword of the people and i am one at whom men spit my eye has also grown dim because of grief and my members are a shadow the upright will be appalled at this and the innocent will stir up himself against the godly nevertheless the righteous will hold to his way he's going i'm still going to hang in there 
my pain may be such that sometimes I have to pour it out. And I've learned that pouring it out and not pouring it out doesn't really do any good. But eventually, my prayers are pure. And I'll hold to that way. And he who has clean hands will go stronger and stronger. Come again in all of you now. For I do not find a wise man among you. He's rejecting their counsel. They say they're wise. He goes, no, you're not. My days are past. My plans are torn apart. Even the wishes of my heart, they make night into the day, saying, the light is near in the presence of darkness. If I look for Sheol as my home, I make my bed in darkness. If I call to the pit, you are my father, to the worm, my mother, and my sister. Where now is my hope? And who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? Shall we go together down to the pit? He's going, where do I put my hope? I put it in death. That's an empty hope. As he shared with his last friend's statement, though he slay me, I will hope, I will trust in him. So the great thing about this book is that Job is all over the map. He's praising God, but feeling attacked by God. He doesn't feel like there's any hope, and then he knows there's hope. He talks about death and the grave, but then he talks about heaven and vindication. All of us, at one time in our lives, either in the past or in the future, will identify with these feelings. And your feelings may be true, but they're not true. You may feel that way. And Job feels that God has turned against him. But the reality is God views Job as blameless and is, as I say, proud of who he is. The scriptures tell us, when temptation comes our way, God will give us strength and give us a way to escape. So when these things happen, again, instead of saying, why me, God? We ought to say, what are you teaching me? Am I not trusting you as I ought to? And are you giving me opportunities to trust you more. And that's why I end each message by saying, it is easy to say, I'm going to trust God forever. Let's just say, I'm going to trust him for the next 15 minutes. And when the next 15 minutes over, I'm going to trust him for the next 15 minutes. And when I lay my head down at night, I'm going to trust him that even if I don't rise, He's loved me and has taken me to be with him in his presence. And if I rise in that morning, I want to trust him. And I'll trust him and I'll trust him and I'll trust him. Because he is worthy of our trust. And he has demonstrated how much he loves us. 
and how victorious we are. We never, ever, ever trade that knowledge for what you don't know. And like I said, we have the advantage. We know exactly that Job is a blameless man because we've been told so. When life happens to us, sometimes we're not told why this tragic thing happened or these people judge us or we're whatever. And we may never be vindicated here. But when we stand in front of him, we are holy and pure and justified and even glorified. That's how great our God is. So, all the people of the Lord will say, I will trust him because he's trustable. And all God's people said,